0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Emily Parks, has had a lifelong association with doctors at one point needing a bowel transplant. As you would imagine, she's had many healthcare experiences and here to share some of those and what she has learned over the years is Emily Parks. Emily, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted to be hosting a conversation with you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I want to start the conversation from wherever you like to begin your story. So tell us your story from whatever point you're comfortable to tell it.
1: I was born with a myopathic intestinal pseudo-obstruction, it came from a genetic mutation, essentially the Muscles in my intestine were incredibly weak, and I couldn't absorb anything I ate or drank. Pretty much from infancy, so for almost 30 years, I was on IV nutrition or parenteral nutrition. I was fully dependent on it. I I ate for fun, and because it's a, a tradition, it's very connected to culture and social interactions, but it really didn't supply me anything nutritionally. So I had I was on parental nutrition. I had an ileostomy and a gastrostomy, and was in and out of the hospital a lot when I was a child. It kind of took a little bit of a break when I was a young teenager and going through high school. But it was pretty frequent hospitalizations, mostly from the probiotic getting infected. So it would be a week bout in the hospital, and then coming back to school to catch up. Socially, it was kind of hard to maintain those relationships, being there and then gone. And I wasn't particularly transparent about my illness. And so I, I made it through high school. I made it through college. I was fortunate enough to be able to go to a university away from home and live independently and uh, graduated and also work full-time. I went to school in Boston, and about a couple years after graduation, I moved to the D.C. area, and that's where I got my first full-time job that wasn't in food service. And it was outside of Washington D.C., and that's where I got hooked up with a transplant team. And when I was 28, I had an intestinal transplant, and since then, I've had way less hospitalizations, way less clinic visits. I I don't have a Broviac, I don't have an ileostomy, I don't have a gastrostomy, I don't have anything, and it's been going pretty well. But with all of that I've also been able to recognize the long-term effects of my chronic illness in terms of like my psychological development, my social development. I work in behavioral health. I'm an employment specialist. So I help people with severe psychiatric illnesses find and keep employment and I started to see a lot of similarities in clients with trauma responses, what traumatized them, and to my experiences in the healthcare world. I think the biggest one was when I was first approached for a transplant, my initial response was, I'm not going to do that. And I at that point my life expectancy was maybe somewhere in my 30s that hadn't fully set in as far as i was concerned i was like i'm hitting the milestones i'm went to school i work independently yeah i get into the hospital but then you know that clears up and i i'm back to doing what i want to do and i really wasn't thinking seriously about how these line infections could get worse over time and become more dangerous or that the condition of my intestine was getting worse and worse. And I was having translocation from my uh, native colon that was in a blind loop that was causing a lot of these line infections. And so my response was, I don't want to be in the hospital. I don't want to talk to doctors. Uh, If I get a transplant, it sounds like I have to hang around you guys a lot more, so I'm not going to do that. There's a lot of fear that I had that there'd be some kind of mistake diagnostically or, um, you know, in the treatment response, and I would pass away, and it would kind of be chalked to it wasn't to the fall of the hospital it wasn't a mistake to anybody, you know, it just uh, you know, she just kind of died. So I had a lot of mistrust of the healthcare system. I had a lot of misinformation about intestinal transplants and a lot of denial about where I was medically. And it took them a year to convince me to even talk to their surgeon. And afterwards, I was like, okay, sign me up because then I was like, okay, so for maybe a year, year and a half, I have to hang out with you guys all the time. But then I get to not talk to you (laughs) for hopefully a long time. Mm -hmm. And so that that's what got me into medical trauma and medical PTSD, mostly because I I recognize this in myself and I didn't I, I looked for resources and there was some literature out there. There was a lot of patient blogs out there, but there wasn't any kind of support group. So I figured I'd make my own because I suddenly had a lot of downtime while I was in recovery.
0: Emily, you're a remarkable woman and the, the story <laughs> that you're describing sounds like a nightmare. That aside, it's fantastic to see you so well and that you are having less to do. With healthcare, which is always a good thing. Mm. I want to unpack your story in a little bit more granular detail. Yeah. So describe to me the worst experience you had in healthcare, the most traumatizing experience, if if you can manage that.
1: Definitely when I was very, very young and I didn't have power of my own consent. Uh, My parents had consent and I was... You know, really too young to understand what was going on or the importance of things. There were many times that I was held down, fighting, held down against my will. Or, I mean, my biggest trauma even today is pre-procedure, pre-OR. Just with me and the anesthesiologist, I I get very kind of hyper vigilant, hyper aware. I need to identify who the anesthesiologist is, and even before we get in, I have a serious talk and i I say, you know, this is how we're gonna do anesthesia and uh, the anesthesia. Um first, I don't like masks, I don't want anything over here, and that's because when I was young, I was rushed into surgery, and I remember fighting the anesthesiologist who's trying to get the mask on me. And all I really wanted to say to the anesthesiologist is that the mask looked like a mask that I saw in a Houdini-inspired episode of Batman. And uh, he didn't want to hear that. Um, and I lost the battle. And ever since then, I don't want oxygen masks. And I get different responses from different anesthesiologists. Some of them are like, oh, that's fine. Um, it's usually the more seasoned ones and then the The newer ones are like, oh, no, you need your oxygen levels up to a certain percentage. Or they want to blow air in my direction. There's something about it that really freaks me out. My other rule for anesthesiologists is I need to know who's going to administer the drugs. And I get to say when they're administered. I've been given the old sneak attack with ProfoVol. So I need to know exactly when it's happening. And I'm the one that says, okay, now you can go. And it's just very laser focused, very intense. Usually I cry. Usually I need to hold somebody's hand. It's this weird, surreal experience because it's been like that since like I was a little kid and here I am almost 30 and I still have to go through that same motions just to feel okay about going to sleep for a procedure or a surgery.
0: You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Legal consent is very, very clearly defined. Whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, you, you must consent to what's happening or at least have it explained to you in a way that you then can fully appreciate why you need this mask or that mask or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. It sounds like shortcuts were being taken. Even as a child, you must have felt that you had to say yes before something could be done to you.
1: Yeah, and there definitely things were explained. I I think it was very much in a situation where cognitively I understood it, but maybe like emotionally I didn't. Or because I was very young. You know, the seriousness didn't make sense, but it was like, OK, I just have to say yeses. There were definitely times when I felt like I had to say yes. But that was more of saying yes to get people to stop bothering me about saying yes.
0: There you were as a child. Yeah. They must have understood that you were emotionally triggered by this experience. And so the consent procedure might need to have been or might need to be altered for a child so that they are able to consent or the procedure is performed in a way that doesn't yeah. do induce this kind of fear. What have you felt about it since you became an adult and understood exactly what they were trying to do?
1: I've learned more about how different hospitals operate. This was a very small rural hospital that didn't have any I, like now they have a children's hospital but at the time they had a children's floor so I don't think it was as equipped to work with children on more of what the level of they're at versus like uh, a well-known children's hospital that has more maybe child life folks involved or one one big thing I really noticed is I was never, as a child, offered things like IV Xanax before a procedure, and now it is readily offered to me. And so that's something that I wish that hospital had would, would have done, um, is offer some talk therapy or play therapy. Um, they had some of that, but their child life services was lacking. I wish there was more availability of Xanax or other medications to kind of help ease the tension. I think it was just like a lot of adults that usually used to working with adults and then I was this very severely ill kid that was just always there. They weren't as equipped. They weren't as advanced as they are now.
0: The concern is that for many people, the experience they have as a child, regardless of what the experience is, lives mm. deep inside them in a way that makes it difficult for healthcare to respond when they need help. Because as soon as they enter that space, their amygdala is fired up and it says fight or flight. And nothing yeah. gets through because it's filtering that information. Yeah. That can't happen in 2022. It shouldn't happen in 2022. And this is where I'm really pleased that you're doing the work that you're doing. How can we better deal with this? Because there will be many places that have a children's ward, not a children's hospital where children are still expected to be treated. So how are we doing it better now?
1: I think an area that can always improve is communication, whether it's a child An adult, because even as an adult, if you don't know what's going on and you don't know why, not everybody has a medical mind. Things don't always make sense medically to some people as they do to others, or like, you know, the motivation to change. So I, I think there needs to be more clear dialogue in first what kind of patient is the patient? Is this a more proactive patient that's like, okay, I have diabetes. I'm going to, you know, start dieting. I'm going to, this is my plan for taking my insulin. I'm going to exercise more. And then there's more passive patients who may need some more hand-holding or explaining or motivation. And then there may be patients that just like, okay, I'm just going to, I don't plan on making any changes. So first identifying What kind of patient do you have? And then catering your services to how that patient operates and how they think and organize information, which you can really only know by having detailed conversations. I feel like a lot of the times in healthcare uh, providers are kind of put in this role where they're just like, they just tell the patient what to do and it's expected that the patient does it. That's not always the case. And I see myself as a member of my own healthcare team. If I'm the program manager of my own healthcare because I'm the one that's going home and doing this. So I need to understand why I need to do this in this kind of way. Because for me, if it doesn't make sense, I'm probably not going to do it. But some people don't want that uh, as much information. Some people want it distilled. What kind of person is your patient? What kind of patient? How do they get motivated? What kind of role do they want to play? Not everybody wants to play the same role in their healthcare.
0: The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Emily, in that last couple of sentences, you've summarized information that we desperately are trying to get into health, the healthcare environment. My view of it is what you're, you seem to be saying is we don't necessarily need technical advances. Medicine is very advanced as it is. You talked about IVs and, yeah. and, and other things. What you're talking about is fundamental. Who is your patient? What do you know about them? What do you understand about what they understand? And by the way, it's their body and they need to be involved, whether yeah. actively or passively, depending on their choice in what you do to them. To make that technical medicine even more effective, we need to work with patients and explain things to them in a way that they wish to be have those things explained and in a way that makes sense to them.
1: Exactly, and what, what are their goals? If their goal is to travel to Japan, okay, how do we get you there? Or if your goal is to spend as much time with your kid, How do we get? So, what's important to the patient? The health is the obstacle. How do we move around it? Because everybody is going to have different goals. For example, for my transplant, what motivated my doctors for me to get a transplant was the Lyme infection. They were concerned that I was going to die. My concern was I didn't want an ostomy anymore. I wanted to wear a bikini. (laughs) And I remember in a very, very clearly talking to my surgeon. Um, he was like, well, we don't really know how much uh, colon you have left until we get in there. Would you live with an ostomy? And I was like, no, the only reason I'm doing this, you guys have your reason. My reason is this, no ostomy or <laughs> no deal. And he's like, well, you're going to need one afterwards for a little bit. I'm like, I can wait another like month or two. But the end goal is I don't want anything. I don't want any extra stuff on my stomach. And I I got I got what I asked for, but everybody goes in for different reasons, including providers. They uh, they have their own motivation to go in, and that's may not that could match what the patient wants, and that could maybe not match it. So, what drives you, whoever you are? Um, but it is you're right. We we're very advanced in medicine. We're lacking in more of these fundamental soft skills of transferring information, acknowledging and validating communication. It's this kind of, so everybody feels like they're still human in healthcare, not just like you're part of you know the assembly line of a Model T plant.
0: So... I'm going to allow you free license here and say, why do you think that we are at this point? Why do you think that people are not communicating effectively? Uh,
1: Communication's hard. Sounds easy, but it's hard. There's a lot of nuance to it. There's skill. I I think one of the flaws of the human mind is that we assume that everybody coming from the same point we are. Everybody, like, how can you not be... How can you not see this as the solution when I see it? And so we're all kind of stuck in our own heads and we have to remind ourselves it could be different for somebody else. And then with the pressure that comes with medicine, a lot of the times these life and death situations or somebody could be leading a perfectly healthy life and then they're in the hospital and they're not used to. I think a lot of, like, I grew up in the healthcare system. I know how it operates. I know what a, residence is, a resident is and what they can do versus what an attending can do. But um, for example, my little brother is very healthy. He's only been in the ER once because during band practice, he got hit in the face with a flag twirlers flag. And if he got a transplant, it would be a lot harder process for him because he doesn't understand how it runs on the inside and why things take a long time and who makes what decision so then it's going to be this shocking something's happening with this health in a system we don't understand in medicine is kind of even with covid we knew people were suffering with covid but they were kind of whisked away to the hospital and we never saw them we don't really see very critically sick people so it it adds to this illusion, this drama. And I think in kind of like that tense moment, we go into autopilot of fixing problems and things like those soft skills kind of disappear. I've also heard from various medical students and doctors that there's not a lot taught in medical school about Bedside banner is talked about, but patient experience isn't talked about. So it's almost like how, if doctors are not being, and doctors in training are not being kind of exposed to what is this experience like, then they have no reason to think, okay, how, what is, how is this different? How would they explain it? But you can find articles of doctors who became patients or doctors whose partners became patients and it's a completely different world. I think it's just this this iron curtain between us, between the provider and the patient. And coupled with the tense the intensity of the moment, those they kind of fall to the wayside because they're not communication is just not a skill that we hold in high regard in this country. So it falls to the wayside.
0: And yet here we are in 2022 with all of the advance that medicine has made. I mean, there are life-saving procedures now. available. You are a classic yeah. example of somebody who has benefited from this. And yet the fundamental skill that's required is, for whatever reason, neither taught nor practiced. And I find that difficult because if we were, and it is, medicine is a multi- trillion dollar business if you want to put Mm. it in that rather unfortunate in those rather unfortunate terms Mm. if you don't know how to communicate with your customer your business isn't going to last very long is it
1: yeah good medicine is nothing without great communication it doesn't it doesn't matter what's in the petri dish if we can't talk to people about it we can't execute it doesn't matter how good medicine is if we can't execute it correctly
0: In the course of your work, you have come across other patients who've had similar experiences, albeit who have not been as ill as you've been. Can you tell us about one example of somebody who would have had what we would consider a a relatively minor or trivial incident which has gone on to cause them problems for a long time?
1: Yeah, so actually uh, somebody with... uh, an I would say unremarkable medical history. I know somebody who when she was 3 years old, she broke her arm. And when it was time to remove the cast, the 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 saw to take the cast off was not put together correctly, and as the doctor was sawing the cast off, it was cutting into her, and so she started yelling saying it's cutting me and the doctor Interestingly, didn't look at her, looked at mom and said, I'm not cutting her. And then the doctor and the mom held her down to cut off the cast. And when they took it off, she indeed was cut. And she turned out fine, but this all happened in a chair that uh, resembled a dentist chair. So then, year- decades later, she goes to the dentist's office and they pull her back to do the dental examination. And she just has this complete meltdown freak out moment because you know this lay dormant in her and it all came back up she just broke her arm that's it
0: hopefully the doctor learned from that experience presumably they then recognized that they were cutting the child and that therefore was a problem how did how do you know how they handled that situation
1: She was able to communicate why she was upset with the dentist. And the dentist was like, this is something that's important for us to know. And uh, moving forward, her husband accompanies her to the dentist's office. Um, But in that moment when she was a child, she, I mean, she wasn't validated. She wasn't heard. She wasn't even acknowledged. I mean, the doctor looked at mom. Didn't even look at the kid and said, oh, no, I'm not hurting you. And actually was hurting her. But, you know, instances like this and repeated instances can really disengage patients and that becomes very dangerous when they're chronically ill. And I I know patients that have been traumatized to such an extent that they have a chronic illness and they're like, if I get sick, I get sick. I'm not going to go back. I'm not seeing another doctor. Seeing a doctor and reliving that trauma is worse than dying from their chronic illness. We shouldn't have a healthcare system that disengages patients from receiving care.
0: In all of the research that I've seen about poor outcomes in healthcare, this is one that hardly features as an important factor. We often talk about knowing about people's backgrounds, and, and we assume that's because they're too busy to go to the doctor or that there's some other reason or they can't afford it. There are clearly instances where it is because the patient is choosing not to engage with healthcare because of what, because of an experience they had decades before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Something doctors should be aware of is when you see a patient, you don't know the last doctor or provider they saw. It could have been a great experience, it could have been poor, but repeated poor experiences can kind of taint one's perspective of all providers or it could be of a particular provider. They just are avoided to see that particular person because of these particular reasons or it could be nothing that they did at all. It was done years and years before and uh, the trauma is just, it's just too much. It's just, it's too risky versus, you know, I was in denial myself.
0: Emily Parks, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Enormous amount of wisdom. You need to be heard loud and proud. (laughs) You are making an enormous difference to healthcare worldwide. Please keep going. And if there's anything that we can do to support you, please reach out. It's been an honor. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I just... I know there's a time difference and I just want to say thank you so much because I appreciate it. It's right before the holidays too.
0: The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.